The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. We have a moral obligation to do everything we can to prevent an unnecessary conflict. It is the U.S. that is threatening peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Taiwan is part of China's territory. Congressional delegations have gone to Taiwan for decades, uh, and they will continue to do so. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. Florida is the state where woke goes to die. And what I would say to Senator Warnock is where you at, scared of cat. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. China resumes military drills around Taiwan after another U.S. delegation to the island. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics. As tensions rise across the region, we'll be joined by a member of that delegation just back, Democratic Congressman John Garamendi, who serves on the House Armed Services Committee. Later, electoral politics on this primary eve. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis running unopposed in tomorrow's primary, but he's raising more money than Donald Trump. We'll talk about why and his impacts in these elections with Republican strategist Adam Goodman. Analysis from our panel, the signature panel in place. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are Bloomberg Politics contributors. The delegations just keep coming in Taiwan. It's been a busy airport uh, lately after Nancy Pelosi's, of course, much heralded visit. This time an American governor shows up, uh, Eric Holcomb of Indiana, arriving in Taipei for what he calls an economic development trip, something that would not typically make any news. And by the way, it's the second time he's gone. No, it didn't make news the first time. That follows the latest congressional delegation. Just last week included our next guest, as a matter of fact, Congressman John Garamendi. It was led by Senator Ed Markey, the Democrat of Massachusetts. Here's Markey as the group met with Taiwan's President Tsai. At this moment of uncertainty, we must do everything we can to maintain peace and stability for Taiwan. We have a moral obligation to do everything we can to prevent an unnecessary conflict. And Taiwan has demonstrated incredible restraint and discretion during challenging times. The reaction from China, guess what? More drills. China's Eastern Theater Command says immediately after its organizing war patrols and combat drills in the sea and airspace around Taiwan, it's its senior colonel, Xi Yi, calling it a stern deterrent to the U.S. and Taiwan playing political tricks. The message back from the State Department, get used to it. Here's spokesman Ned Price. Some 10 or more congressional delegations have visited Taiwan uh, this year alone. Members of Congress visiting <coughs> Taiwan is entirely in line uh, with our one uh, our longstanding one China uh, policy. Congressman John Garamendi, as I mentioned, was one of the members of that last delegation uh, that they were just talking about, the Democrat from California on the House Armed Services Committee, and he joins us now. Congressman Garamendi, welcome back. I, we saw images and video of, you, video of you on this trip. It was a relatively small group, 
But what's the point here following the trip that Nancy Pelosi took and all of the drama that surrounded it? Is this about frequency now? Like Ned Price is saying, we're just going to keep showing up and showing up until it's not a story. Well, I think it's extremely important that we do show up. I think it's extremely important that we maintain an an open uh, and consistent policy with Taiwan. Uh, What China has tried to do uh, periodically is to establish a new normal. Mm -hmm. They would surely like to see all of this going forward being a new normal in which they are surrounding Taiwan with a fleet of ships and missiles and so on. Uh, That's not likely to happen. But what we have is some 70 years now of a relationship with Taiwan. We recognize that it is part of China, but nonetheless, it is a very robust democracy and an extremely important international trading partner with the United States. When you see the reaction, as we have yet again from Beijing, more drills encircling in, in, in the island in a way that we haven't seen uh, kind of, you know, you talk about a new normal. They've definitely ratcheted up the levels of uh, of of tension in, in the region here following Pelosi's trip and following your trip. Uh, at what point do you worry that, that that is the new normal, that it's already been exposed here? Well, that's why we have to continue to visit. That's why congressional delegations uh, need to be there. That's why uh, we need to maintain a uh, relationship with them. Do you they not take clearly, China at its word that they that they will respond that that they will respond with severe consequences? I do not believe China is interested in a war that they're not likely to be able to win. Uh, Taiwan uh, is fully determined to protect its democracy and to not be uh, become another Hong Kong. We saw what happened at Hong Kong: one country, two systems. Well, until. Uh, Beijing decided there'd be one system and they just simply shut down all all civil liberties in Hong Kong and Taiwan's not about to have that happen to them. They're prepared to defend their democracy uh, at some point in the future. There may very well be an opportunity for Taiwan to rejoin uh, mainland China. But that's certainly not the case now. We have uh, what amounts to an authoritarian dictatorship in China uh, they've already shown that they're perfectly willing to shut down any dissent, whether it uh, is in the Southwest or uh, or in Hong Kong. And oh. Taiwan wants no part of that. Right. And frankly, Taiwan's an important, a very, very important part of the world economy. We saw you meet with uh, Taiwan's president, as I mentioned, along with uh, members of the delegation. Congressman, what's what's the conversation when the reporters leave the room and you get down to what to whatever extent you get into serious conversation here as a member of the House Armed Services Committee. Is there is there an ask for a commitment to help defend Taiwan or is there an ask for more weapons? What do they want? Oh, they want more weapons. Uh, American policy is quite clear. We're not going to send troops uh, onto the uh, onto the island. Uh, that's not going to happen. However, we have for the last well, 50, 70 years. I'm having a hard time hearing you, Congressman. I don't know what happened to your oh, line. I'm sorry. Not at all. Why don't you, why don't you try that again? Hopefully we're better right now. Yes, it uh, is. Very good. America has provided Taiwan with weapons for uh, 50 years or more, and we're going to continue to do so. Uh, the United States is not going to be putting troops on the island. 
uh, to defend Taiwan. That's up to the Taiwanese to do. I understand. Uh, so what we have here is a, uh, a situation in which the United States and you asked, what did, they, what did the president ask? They asked for the weapons. Uh, there, there's a whole series of weapons that have been requested. They're being worked uh, through, and uh, they should be delivered very, very soon. Is that a deterrent for China, or is that to help Taiwan protect itself from the inevitable? Uh, it is a deterrent, and the United States remains a deterrent. We're not about to move out of the uh, South China Sea, nor are we going to allow China to close the uh, Taiwan Strait. Yeah. I would expect that uh, in the future, the United States Navy will do what it's done periodically, and that is to run uh, uh, destroyers, DDGs, uh, through the Taiwan Straits, as we have periodically. We, we believe that that is an open uh, sea, subject to the uh, will of the individual nations that want to travel through it. And I'm sure that we will continue to do that. Uh, we're not going to uh, uh, just turn our back on Taiwan either yeah. with the uh, with not providing military weapons. Taiwan could consider itself, and this is sometimes discussed, uh, as a porcupine. Uh, yeah. If China thinks that they can swallow this porcupine, they may find it to be a very, very difficult yeah. and an unpleasant experience. Well, they can ask Russia about that, too, I suppose, uh, Congressman. They're, exactly. they're watching this take place, uh, of course, at the very same time here. It's difficult to tell where this goes. I'm hearing you speak uh, very sternly about this, and I'm hearing China say they don't even believe in the median line anymore. At what point, Congressman Garamendi, is it time for the U.S. to take a new look at China One policy, the One China policy, and maybe what our position is on this. Well, it's, it has been clear for at least four to five decades that a declaration of independence by Taiwan is a red line for China. Mm -hmm. And I would suspect that they would cross that red line and it would be a, a bloody difficult battle all the way along. But we're not there. Uh, the American policy is, uh, understands one China also understands that Taiwan uh, does not want to become another Hong Kong, uh, that they want, that they value their democracy, and frankly, yeah. we value that democracy too. And so I think what we're going to find here is that uh, things will settle down uh, and that uh, the new normal ought to be the old normal. Uh, we don't want to uh, have China close the uh, Taiwan Straits, nor do we want yeah. China to believe that it can encircle uh, Taiwan and what would be a at least a demonstration of a blockade and could easily turn into a blockade. Uh, so, so it sounds uh, like a lot more lawmakers for, are planning to go to Taiwan. There'll be further delegations. And I know even Kevin McCarthy said if he becomes speaker, he wants to lead a bipartisan delegation as one of his first moves. Would you join the Republican uh, leader on, on a trip like that? I do want to note that there was a Republican in this Codell that you were on as well. Uh, indeed, uh, we did have a bipartisan delegation. Uh, we also, uh, well, first of all, McCarthy's not going to become the, not going to become speaker. <laughs> if he wants to go as as a minority leader, well, he can certainly do that. And if he were to invite me, I've known him for years. Yeah. Uh, and uh, his company would always be appreciated. But he's not going to be speaker. I believe that the Democrats. Uh, we now have the wind at our back uh, with the legislation that has been passed, uh, the infrastructure, the. Uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the health care uh, 
cost savings that are that are going to be there for seniors and for well for everybody. Uh, and we're going to move very, very aggressively on the green economy. So you think uh, you're going to keep the House, though, is what you're saying? Democrats keep the House. I, I think we've got a really good shot at taking the House. Man, the analysis uh, has been really we, something got, over the last couple of days on this. Uh, Congressman, I, I want to thank you for joining us. John Garamendi, Democrat from California, fresh off the Codel to Taiwan. We're going to get into that more, by the way the sort of shifting landscape as we head to the midterms later on this hour. But we want to assemble the panel first on this. Do we overwhelm China with more Codells than they can keep track of? And what does this mean about Joe Biden's meeting coming up with President Xi? Rick Davis, Jeannie Shanzano with us with international politics to start us off. We turn domestic later on on this primary eve, and I'm glad you're here. It's great to be back. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So everybody's going to Taiwan now. Members of Congress, governors, I suspect anyone who wants to be perceived as a presidential contender got to show up in Taipei. Starting to think we bring this broadcast just to talk to them all. That's where they're all going. Uh, Let's assemble our panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. I missed you both. Rick, does this strategy lull Beijing into complacency, which seems to be the State Department's thought on this, or does it inflame tensions until we simply have no relationship any longer with Beijing? You know, I I don't think it does either one of those things. First of all, it definitely doesn't lull them into complacency. They are not going to be compliant in any way, shape, or form. We lost the fight of trying to bring China into the liberal democracies of the world, and now they are charting their own path. They want to bring liberal democracies under their wing. And so it's a competition. It's not a matter of sort of placating China anymore. And I think that the focus that this administration is starting to have, and it's the right for Congress to do it too, is, hey, let's focus on Taiwan. It's a thriving democracy. It's a key component to our national security. It supplies us with the majority of the chips that have been so important to our development. And, 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 on their own, they have proven their ability to function as a as a thriving economy in, in a very tough neighborhood. So let's open up the spigot. And, and these trips are not unusual. They're just now getting irritating China. And that's because of China's change in focus, not ours. What do you make of the conversation with Congressman Garamendi about this, Jeannie? Uh, it's almost just about showing up here. I mean, that's really what we're talking about, right? I know that Taipei wants weapons. They're making that ask to, in this case, you know, it's appropriate. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee has represented their House Armed Services between Markey and Garamendi. But but what else are we doing? I mean, there's going to be a lot of delegations. We heard 10 of them uh, coming from the State Department here. Kevin McCarthy can't wait to get on an airplane. Does this at some point start to backfire or is it exactly what we should be doing? 
I'm going to stop packing for my trip with Sandan to Taiwan so we can chat. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I think that one thing we have to be clear on is that we talk a lot about this as, you know, being precipitated by these visits, but it's really much bigger than that, and it's driven by much larger factors. There's been a, a steady erosion in relations for several years, and some scholars describe us as in the early stages of the fourth Taiwan Strait crisis from 1954 and then 1958-1995, now about 2018, perhaps during the Trump administration, into the Biden administration. And that that's really where we are. And I think the very scary part of this for for all of us is the fact that tensions are so ratcheted up that there is a possibility for miscalculations and mistakes which can be deadly and escalating yeah. and that's something we really have to be careful of. that's not to say people should not visit but that is to say beijing certainly washington taipei have to be very very careful about responses understanding that mistakes happen when they are using the military exercises that they're using and that's a real danger new uh, joint exercises the biggest since 2018 rick between the U.S. and South Korea, just beginning them uh, today, Ulchi Freedom Shield. This is an annual event, and you've probably seen video of it. It's airplanes and tanks and warships and infantry, uh, and they're they're popping off weapons and and making a big show of it. Uh, kind of a renewal, though, because this the Trump administration pulled back from some of this stuff. Rick, is this all about China, or should we be talking about North Korea as well? Well, I think definitely uh, we want to be talking about North Korea. Look, these guys have been uh, really uh, haunting uh, Japan and South Korea for some time. Uh, they've been uh, launching missile, missiles into the region uh, uh, with abandon. And, and I think this is one of the hottest spots in the world, right? I mean, North Korea has threatened military action over and over again. And so we cannot drop our attention uh, to this most important area. It, it, if it has some residual impact on China, so be it. China knows that we have these permanent bases in South Korea and in Japan. And, and, and I think, again, the focus on helping our allies and partners in the region, Japan and South Korea in this instance, mm -hmm. to build their militaries, make them more modern and increase their readiness is only because the neighborhood, China and North Korea, have gotten more aggressive over time. We are reacting to their aggression, not the other way around. What do we need to be doing militarily, though? And I'll ask you both this as we continue to write checks, you know, billions of sending billions and hundreds of billions, I guess, at some point in, in weapons to Ukraine. We're six months into this thing on Wednesday and there is a massive looming threat uh, taking place in Asia. Rick, do you see them? When you consider the axis between Russia and China the same or or decisions, some hard decisions will need to be made when it comes to deploying resources. Well, I think it's good news that we're six months in and there's still a shooting war in the Ukraine. Right. Yeah. I mean, like all the people who thought they knew what was going to happen yeah. would have given up Ukraine in three days. And so the fact that the Ukrainians are teaching us what resistance means is a very good example that I think is being seen in Beijing. Uh, you would think that they would look at that example and say, wow, all the Russians had to do was cross a land border. Look at what kind of yeah, problems right. we would have, you know, having to go across. So it sounds a like you do see them there. connected, though. I think they're connected optically. Does I the think White that, House look at it that way, Jeannie? 
I think they may, but uh, but I would also caution, China ha is um, historically going to take their time. And I think the danger here is that they learn how to shore themselves up to those kind of economic sanctions the world put on Russia. And that's a real danger for the West if that happens. Great conversation with Rick and Jeannie. They're here all hour. We'll reassemble the panel a bit later as we turn to electoral politics on a primary eve. New York and Florida vote tomorrow. We'll head to the Sunshine State, a conversation with Adam Goodman. Coming up on the fastest hour in politics, this is Bloomberg. Ron DeSantis is unopposed in tomorrow's Republican primary. It's primary day in Florida. So he hit the road in advance of the voting, heading over the weekend. It's Friday to Pennsylvania to stump for Doug Mastriano. Remember, that's the Republican nominee there, the election denier. Uh, who is in a pretty interesting race, as a matter of fact. And this follows DeSantis uh, visiting Ohio on behalf of J.D. Vance. The DeSantis national tour, as he speaks, yes, of course, it's in favor of the candidate, but he's very much speaking uh, like a national candidate. Listen to Governor DeSantis in Pennsylvania. That shows you what they think of you. That is insulting our intelligence that you're calling it the Inflation Reduction Act. What are they doing? Obviously, they're not doing anything to, to stop inflation. They're spending a lot more money that we don't have. Taking aim at Democrats, of course, in what was seen as a win for the Biden administration, congressional Democrats, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. That's not really something that, well, look, maybe it would be, but not the headline of a local political rally, right? Adam Goodman is with us to talk about the DeSantis effect and the DeSantis tour and where this is all going uh, with us here on Sound On. Back with us, in fact, Republican strategist, columnist Edward R. Murrow, senior fellow at Tufts University's Fletcher School. Uh, Adam, this is the man who is widely seen as the alternative to Donald Trump. The polling has borne this out. He's raising more money than Trump, though. These numbers that I mentioned are pretty incredible. $142 million from the start of 21 uh, through August 5th of this year. Ken Griffin, Paul Tudor Jones on there. That tops the $136 million that Donald Trump collected. Is it time to pass the baton? I can tell you uh, it was a tough day on the markets, but it's not been a tough day for the stock of DeSantis for the better part of the last two years. It's been a rally. He's got a... He's got a message, Joe, uh, and, and the message is the Florida story. You, you know it, it's been successful because hundreds of thousands of people have come uh, to move into Florida as permanent residents. You know it because uh, they were able to get through the pandemic with the economy down there uh, fairly strong. You had this sense of freedom that comes from low taxes uh, and fewer rules. And that it is playing well, uh, all, not just in Florida, Joe, but all over America. And, and think of it this way. There's so much going on right now that we, the people feel really kind of down about. We're looking for something to feel good about. And I think this kind of story kind of stands out for that reason. And he is taking that far and wide. And I, I know you said Pennsylvania and Ohio, whatever. I thought those were parts of Florida. Uh, he, I think it, you find, Joe, that it, people want to hear this. And yeah. uh, that makes him a legitimate contender uh, well past, obviously, his reelection in 22. You can't talk about Ron DeSantis without talking about Donald Trump. Uh, listen to what Liz Cheney said about him over the weekend. She was asked about him uh, by John Carl on ABC News about specifically 
the idea of a Ron DeSantis presidential campaign. Here she is. DeSantis is somebody who is right now campaigning for election deniers. Uh, and I think that is something that, that I think people have got to have real pause about. You know, either you fundamentally believe in and will support uh, our constitutional structure or you don't. If he's going national, Adam Goodman, does he need to start distancing himself from the, the election denier label or, or does he lean into it? I mean, he, he was he was on stage shaking hands with with uh, Doug Mastriano just three days ago. Well, I think you can you can always make the case in politics that you're brought down in what they call guilt by association. So if he's yeah. on stage with anyone who's considered one of the deniers, you're going to hear that kind of uh, refrain. Why not just clean the record, though, and not deal with any of that? Ron DeSantis could apparently stand on his own without being involved. Uh, It's a very good point, Joe, because what really got him going, beyond the fact that Florida, by almost every measure, has done very well over the last uh, two and a half years, what really got him going was uh, giving a sense of empowerment back to people. When he went after... The situation where they were uh, talking about teaching sex ed to uh, kids in kindergarten. I'll give you the shorthand on it. Uh, That really gave parents a sense of empowerment when he said, I stand with you. You saw a little bit of that uh, with Youngkin, actually, in Virginia Mm -hmm. uh, last year. And I think you're seeing it here. America is looking for a message and a messenger that feels good. And I can tell you, as long as... uh, Ron DeSantis leans into, using your words, leans into the message of what's happened in Florida over the last two and a half years under his uh, tutelage. Uh, so much the better for him. And sure. in terms of the money, in terms of the money, Joe, yeah. most of the money you talked about uh, up front is big dollar money. And of course, exactly. Said, wow, so does he dollar. need those five dollar contributions to be a real deal presidential he candidate? Does. I think he does. Yeah. But if he were to be pursuing that now nationally, small donors nationally, he would justly be accused of running for national right. office of course. or reaffirming his own. That would have been a bad mistake. He has resisted it uh, to this point. Yeah. I think it served him very well. For better or worse, you say it's worse. I want to ask you, though, about the Democratic primary quickly here. Charlie Crist, Nikki Freed. Uh, this is said to be closer than than some polls are showing. You've got establishment kind of versus I'm not sure what we call Nikki Freed. What's going to happen tomorrow? Uh, I, I think Charlie Chris is going to win, probably yeah. decidedly. You had one poll that came out showing Nikki ahead a couple of days ago, but mm-hmm. it was from a group that miscalled the presidential in 16 and 20, also miscalled the gubernatorial in 18 in Florida. Neither um, have the also, stuff to beat Ron DeSantis, though, right? right that's you know the, the frustrating thing. I know I speak for everyone who's been in a campaign where you feel even if you win the first round, Winning the second looks and feels Herculean, if not nigh impossible. That is what is facing the Democratic nominee, unfortunately, whether it be Charlie Crist or Nikki Freed. Adam Goodman, great to have you back. Republican strategist, columnist, and Murrow Fellow at Tufts University's Fletcher School. Liz Cheney had more to say about that, by the way, not just Ron DeSantis, but other so-called election deniers and her plans for them. We'll reassemble the panel next. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. So by this time tomorrow, people will be lining up to vote on their way home from work or, well, in the case of New York, on their way to work. Thank you for joining us on the fastest hour in politics. Bloomberg Radio, I'm Joe Matthew in Washington with our signature panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Jeannie, I'm fascinated by Democrats' love affair with Liz Cheney, someone who represents what most liberals stand against, just name the issue, with one exception, of course, that's the 2020 election. Donald Trump. And it looks like Liz Cheney, who lost her primary, of course, just last week, will be there this fall for some Democrats. As she described on ABC this week, uh, when asked about this new political organization that she's launching, listen to Liz Cheney. I'm going to be very focused on working to ensure that we do everything we can um, not to elect election deniers. And I'm going to work against those people. I'm going to work to support their opponents. I think it matters that much. Working to support their opponents, uh, Jeannie, that means she's going to be on stage with Democrats? She could be. You know, this great task, as she calls it, is to ensure that Trump, Trumpism, and election deniers more broadly don't continue their stranglehold on the Republican Party. And so to do that, she's willing, as she's shown, not only to lose her own seat, but to work across the aisle, to work with Democrats and people who have a similar distaste for, you know, these election deniers. The challenge for Liz Cheney, of course, is she not only lost in Wyoming, she lost huge. And Donald Trump has shown throughout this primary season he does have a stranglehold on the Republican Party. And this is a boon for Democrats in this election cycle and what's otherwise a bad election year for them, that and the Roe decision. But it is very, very problematic for Republicans, as we've heard from Mitch McConnell, who want to win the general election and take back the Senate and the House. So it's a complicated mess, but I think Liz Cheney is willing to blow up the Republican Party, cost them wins to what she sees as the longer term of saving the party. Well, to what extent are you taking this seriously, Rick? Obviously, uh, Jeannie just mapped it out. This was not, you know, a near miss for Liz Cheney, uh, who was essentially uh, evicted from the Republican caucus in the House, now lost her job in Wyoming, where her family name has been pretty meaningful in Republican politics. Why should we be paying attention? Well, it's we should pay attention because, one, we're in a divided Senate. We're in a very close House of Representatives. And this election, more so than any, is sort of focused on building a democracy versus tearing it down. So uh, Arizona, a microcosm, right? Election deniers won the nomination, all endorsed by Donald Trump, for governor, for Senate, and for uh, secretary of state. Liz Cheney wants to make sure none of those Republicans serve in office, that they don't get to win in the general election. And so her campaign is really on democracy promotion, not on promoting any one partisan party. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, that she, that is shared with a lot of people. I mean, Adam Kinzinger, one of her partners on the, yeah. on the committee, is also out there doing exactly the same thing. He's formed a committee, Country First, and it's going yeah. out there and trying to help people who are trying to defeat election deniers. Even if you agree on nothing on, on the policy side, though, Liz Cheney stands next to a Democrat on stage and that that does not come across as disingenuous to voters. 
I don't think she's going to be standing on uh, 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 podiums. I think she's going to be talking about Republicans who she knows best, right? Mm -hmm. And so she's going to carry the negative message on why these people and their efforts to try and tear down the institutions of our democracy is bad for our country. Uh, She doesn't necessarily have to say great things about the Democrats running for office. She did say, though, she would work for those candidates who are running against deniers. So I presume that would have to be a Democrat at some point. Uh, Mitch McConnell, to your point, Jeannie, made made reference to the issue here just last week. He said it again today in Kentucky, uh, talking about candidate quality and essentially all but gave the Senate to uh, Democrats, or at least to keep the Senate. Here's what he said. There's probably a greater likelihood the House flips than the Senate. Senate races are just different. They're statewide. Candidate quality has a lot to do with the outcome. Hashtag candidate quality. We've talked about this before. Everyone points to to the same candidates, Jeannie, right? It's Dr. Oz. It's Herschel Walker. It's J.D. Vance. You could keep going. Those seem to be the big three. Uh, Candidate quality, if if we can use that term here with with a straight face, appears to be the issue here in deciding the balance of power in the Senate. Herschel Walker is really, though, uh, quite an example here. Uh, as as he vies for uh, this Senate seat in Georgia, uh, he's been in the, the midst of this argument over debates. Uh, listen to Herschel Walker talking to Raphael Warnock, the, the current senator from Georgia. And we're not going to hide. I'm going to have like Senator Warnock. And what I would say to Senator Warnock is, where you at, scaredy cat? Where you at, scaredy cat? Uh, it turns out that the the local, I believe it's Live Eleven, has been has invited both Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock uh, to a uh, a debate, and and Herschel Walker has not responded. Warnock is on board. He was asked. Herschel Walker was asked about this. What the problem is uh, with this debate, and, and why he's not uh, going to be taking part. Here he is. Oh, I'm not going to respond to anything that because you know that's not a debate, and you know that when you got people that that have contributed to his campaign and is in this room that only two people are going to see it on Sunday night, I think NFL football. Like God, I'm going to give you an opportunity to be statewide. So everybody can see what it is, see the contrast between the two of us. I don't know how you can ask for anything better. So from what I from what we understand here, there would not be there'd be supporters of both allowed in the hall. And it's not on a Sunday night. It's on a Thursday, as a matter of fact, uh, when, you know, presumably they're not going to be watching uh, NFL games. I don't need to keep going on too much further with this because every day it it seems to be, Rick Davis, something like this with Herschel Walker. Um, Candidate quality. Is that what this election is going to go down to for Republicans? You know, look, I mean, Herschel Walker uh, has no previous experience in any kind of uh, public office. He's a first timer. Sure, he's a great name and a super football player, but uh, the jury is out on whether or not he has the capacity to be a great uh, politician and maybe even uh, elected official. If I were his campaign manager, his consultant, I would not allow him to debate anybody. <laughs> okay. Not even kids. I mean, but like, would you not also be pointing to candidate quality on the Democratic side? You know, look, I, th- I think that, that if you're an incumbent, uh, candidate quality doesn't matter, right? I mean, you're only worried about candidate quality. I just mean quality. nationwide. How come, Jeannie, candidate quality isn't, isn't an issue for Democrats uh, who are running for a lot of these same seats? 
Well, because the Democrats have managed to get candidates, um, not, uh, you know, wholly, but many candidates who are actually making a go of it in some really tough races. So let's look at Ohio. That should be a Republican seat. It's a Republican seat now. Their candidate should win in an off-year election or a midterm election. And yet they've got Tim Ryan. He's running a pretty strong campaign. Flip over to Pennsylvania. Look at Fetterman. Sure, Oz is problematic, but Fetterman, he's been out and he's back in the campaign train now, even from his hospital room. He is a pretty good candidate. So they have done their part. And, you know, Mitch McConnell, I seldom say this, but he's 100 percent right on this. Candidate quality matters an awful lot. And Republicans have a big math problem because they are not only, don't forget, trying to pick up one. They're trying to hold what they have. He doesn't want to be dealing with the likes of Ron Johnson, who is an incumbent and is not a good candidate for Wisconsin Mm. right now. So it's a problem for Republicans. Well, neither of you have even mentioned crew today yet. I wasn't here with you <laughs> last week to talk about it. But I guess when you start to back away from this, Rick, there there is clearly an evolving narrative that says, OK, it looks like Democrats just may well keep the Senate. They could even add a seat. Uh, and and Republicans in the House need to start dialing back expectations. Do you agree with that? Uh, uh, to some degree, I, I do think we're sort of shielding uh, the real argument, uh, and, and it's not about candidate quality. It, obviously, that happens all the time. But uh, being the old man on the block, I remember waking up uh, the day after the election in 1980 uh, with Reagan's sweeping victory and yeah. electing a Republican Senate with people who are completely unqualified to be United States senators. Chick <laughs> Hecht was one of the names that come to mind, uh, voted the dumbest uh, senator in the Senate. And, and, and they served six years, one term, and then almost all of them lost re-election. And, and so that was, they got elected not because they were great candidates or they were good, good huh. campaigner, but there was a red sweep that year. This would have been a red sweep year, but I think the underpinning of this has been lost. The Biden administration has gained a lot of momentum. If they can hold it till November, they're going to uh, ameliorate the sweep, and all of a sudden, bad candidates matter. And, and in the case of Dr. Oz and his crudités, yeah. if he doesn't sharpen his, his efforts, he's not going to have the wind at his back like he thought he was going to have. Uh, and, uh, and, and believe me, uh, red tide makes everybody look like a good candidate and a great elected official. Uh, yeah, and, sure. and without it, they, they just look like bad politicians. A rising tide lifts all boats. Uh, Jeannie, uh, crudite aside, let's say the Senate stays Democratic. House goes Republican. Can Joe Biden get anything done? Very, very difficult. You know, I'm never optimistic about this, and it's even tougher. It'd be harder a di- than now. It, yeah, it, it's going to be even tougher, though, because now you have divided government. You couple that with the number of investigations that we will see from the Republican side in the House. You know, Kevin McCarthy, if he is a speaker, and I know your guest said he won't be, but if he was, he'll be <laughs> running some of those. So it'll be tough for Biden. He's done a lot this year, but next year, if it flips, will be tough. Yeah, we won't count on too many Democrats uh, to understand the future for Kevin McCarthy. Great to talk with both Rick and Jeannie. Great to see you again as well. Thanks for joining us on the Fastest Hour in Politics. If you showed up late, subscribe to the podcast, and I'll meet you on primary day tomorrow on Sound On. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.